Hello everyone, I'm Captain Logan and this is Superhero Rewind. When Blade first came out in 1998, I was a little shocked. I thought about all the other comic book characters who hadn't made a big screen movie yet, Spider-Man, X-Men, Daredevil, and was surprised that Marvel would choose a relatively unknown character for their first major release. Yes, they had some smaller releases years earlier with The Punisher and Captain America, but neither of those were major blockbusters with big-name actors like Blade was. Comic book fans sometimes refer to characters in terms of first string and second string. Spider-Man would be a first string character, and someone like Luke Cage or Iron Fist might be considered closer to second string. Before the Blade movies, I might have even put Blade in a third string. He's usually a supporting character and, to my knowledge, has never even had his own monthly book. He was originally a supporting character in Tomb of Dracula, and he appeared here and there in the Marvel Universe, often in stories dealing with Morbius the Living Vampire. And as far as I know, he only appeared in one place on screen before this film, and that was in a couple episodes of Spider-Man the Animated Series in the 90s. So doing a big screen blade was pretty risky, especially during a time where comic book films still hadn't entirely proven themselves to the general audience. And keep in mind that this came out a year after Batman and Robin, which made comic book movies even riskier. It ultimately turned out to be a very good move, both in concept and in execution. By doing a character most people weren't very familiar with, the film had the advantage of telling a relatively original story and creating a lot of its own mythos. It took the initial idea of Blade and molded it into something that would be a lot of fun to see on screen. So rather than being an everyman as he was originally, with no powers and just good with weapons, Blade here is a bona fide action hero, a half-vampire from the start, and he has everything you want in a dark superhero. He has style, motivation, inner turmoil, something deeply in common with the villain, and really cool weapons that you actually buy him knowing how to use. I would argue that the genius of Blade is taking an unfamiliar character, creating a new brand with it, and making it perhaps even a little better than its source material. Blade turned people into Blade fans, and that opened the floodgates to make successful films based on Marvel superheroes more people had actually heard of. Let me also mention before I go further that before this review, I'd never actually seen this movie. I knew its history, but I never sat down and watched it. When it came out, I wasn't really into vampires, and the only reason I never watched it was because it was a vampire movie. A few years back, after getting into Buffy and Angel, I changed my mind about vampires, but never got around to watching Blade. I wish I had. If I had to describe my viewing experience in one word, it would be refreshed. It was very refreshing to see a movie with real scary vampires with an interesting and complex mythos after all the watered-down vampire properties we've been inundated with lately. Blade is extremely competent, both as a superhero movie and as an action movie. It knows exactly what it wants to show you, it shows it to you, and then it's done. The action scenes feel necessary, and the exposition scenes are interesting and don't feel obligatory. It's well-paced, and it gets the job done. If it doesn't need to be there, it's not in the movie. Rarely have I seen an action movie so dense with material. There's just so much stuff here, and a lot of great things for each character to do. One of the things that brings down some of the superhero films that just don't work, like Catwoman and Elektra, is a weak supporting cast. This movie isn't just Blade and then some people we don't care about. The characters here are pretty simple because, let's face it, this movie is interesting but not terribly deep. Each person has dimension and they act like people. I feel like everyone's motivations and decisions make sense. I'm especially impressed with the leading lady, Karen, who makes sense in ways women don't often in superhero movies. Number one, she isn't a love interest. She and Blade have chemistry, but it isn't sexual chemistry. They work well as a team. Each has a problem, and they're both trying to help each other with their problems. Number two, she isn't made weak just to make the superhero appear stronger. 
She kills vampires without hesitation. At first, she is disturbed to find that vampires are real. She finds it unbelievable, but she quickly resigns herself to the fact that she can't argue with what's right in front of her, and she adapts to it. And when Blade asks her if she's ever used a gun before, she replies with, I learn fast. Number three, she seems like a real scientist. She isn't hot chick pretending to be a scientist like Jessica Alba in Fantastic Four. Sure, she's an attractive woman, but that's just a character trait she happens to have, not one that is brought to the forefront. Nobody ever really calls attention to her gender except for the villain. Then you've got Blade's partner, Abraham Whistler, who makes his weapons, dresses his wounds, and makes the serum that keeps Blade alive, without having to drink human blood. A character like Blade needs someone like Whistler. He can't be a kick-A action hero with incredible martial arts skills, a weapons expert, and a brilliant scientist. Whistler, in the short time we get to know him, is made quite real, with a believable backstory about his family being killed in front of him by vampires, which led him to a life of vampire killing. He and Blade both have that in common, a tragic past due to vampires taking their family away from them, and though they're both hardened and brooding characters, there's a camaraderie that's felt between them, so that when Whistler dies, after being brutally attacked by Frost and his gang, it's a sincerely heart-wrenching moment. If we don't buy these two men's friendship, it'll just feel overdramatic and we won't feel anything while watching Blade hand Whistler his gun and then walk away while we hear the gunshot behind him. It wasn't overdramatic, especially in the context of this universe, and I certainly felt something. I love all the vampire mythos and how well integrated it is with the story. It directly affects each character in a different way. It's part of what makes the film so ultra-stylized, and I felt myself really get sucked into this universe with all the vampire history, legend, and especially the political and social intrigue. There were some concepts here I hadn't seen before, especially the idea of vampires being able to reproduce and turn humans into vampires. Though to be fair, there are lots of vampire continuities I've never seen or read, so I'm sure it's been done in other places. This created a unique and interesting social structure in the vampire community, purebloods versus turned vampires. The purebloods are in charge, and they maintain a society that lives in secret among humans. They have some sort of a treaty with the humans. If they don't assemble in large numbers, the humans leave them alone. Deacon Frost, a turned vampire and the main villain, is extremely ambitious. He's created his own gang of vampires that go directly against that treaty. They get together in huge numbers in clubs and feed on humans together. He believes the purebloods should be overthrown and that vampires should be ruling the humans. He reminds the pureblood in charge that humans are their food, not people to be negotiated with. Frost starts a civil war among the vampires and starts to take over their society. Meanwhile, Blade's own mythos is equally intriguing. His mother was bitten by a vampire while pregnant, and so she apparently died in childbirth when he was born. He ended up becoming a half-vampire. He has their powers, but none of their weaknesses. However, he has weaknesses of his own. He still has their bloodlust, which he tries to combat by taking a serum that is increasingly becoming less and less effective. And he ages like a human. He's not immortal like vampires. Ticking time bombs are always effective in a story like this. If Blade can't be cured of his vampirism, or if he can't get a serum that, that consistently works, he's going to need to feed. And then he's just like the vampires who killed his mother. This is the stuff of good drama. He's constantly fighting between being a hero and being a killer, and not just because he's close to uncontrollable bloodlust, but also because killing is part of his heroism. After all, he can't just reason with vampires and make them stop killing humans. He has to get rid of them in order to save people. But he isn't above killing humans either, especially those who are working with the vampires, which is another fascinating part of the mythos. Some humans, like a policeman who secretly works for Frost, allow themselves to be enslaved to humans and wear a mark that means they're owned by a certain vampire hoping one day to serve their masters well enough that they'll be turned into vampires. 
Karen works on a cure for Blade's bloodlust, and by the end of the film, she has one. But the catch is that it will make him entirely human. This is Blade's opportunity for change. After everything he's been through, struggling not to become what he hates, will he give up the fight and become human, which is what he really wants? No, he makes the conscious choice to continue being what he is, because at the end of the film, there are still plenty of vampires and there's no one else like him to fight them. By choosing to stay the way he is, he makes a real sacrifice, his own happiness in exchange for giving hope to others by killing as many vampires as he can. At times, Karen pegs him for being too heartless, but we find by the end that while he's a hardened and brooding man, he certainly has a heart, and that he cares more about people than he does about revenge. After all, he kills the vampire who killed his mother, and that vengeance was his primary motivation. He's a real hero regardless of some moral ambiguity, because he continues the fight after he gets that vengeance. Deacon Frost is maybe a lesson against overambition. In the context of a situation, because it's not like I'm rooting for the vampires here, the first goal he mentions makes a lot of sense. Vampires should rule humanity because humans are their food. Why don't they just take over? This isn't the traditional villain plot of world domination just because you want to be in charge of everything. He has a different understanding of the vampire situation than the purebloods, and he's acting on that. But he goes way too far by trying to force a vampire prophecy. By using the blood of a half-breed blade, he can awaken a creature that will turn anyone into a vampire it comes into contact with. I'm a little mixed on this idea because, on the one hand, I like that he's so ambitious he doesn't think this through, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, if he wants every human to turn into a vampire, doesn't that make food scarce? Wouldn't he just turn the world into something similar to the one in Daybreakers? Then again, I kind of wonder why that doesn't happen in this universe anyway. There isn't any talk about how exactly vampires procreate, but we know the purebloods are born as vampires. So vampires can be both born and they can be turned. So wouldn't you end up with an unsustainable population with a scarce food source eventually? They all have to feed and they're turning people. But he is a great menacing villain, and I love that when he tries to get Blade to join him, it makes sense. Villains trying to recruit the hero only makes sense if the line between them is blurred somehow, and it definitely is in this case. Frost wants to be like Blade, retain all his powers but have none of the weaknesses, and in the end, he gets his wish when he's fused with the creature from the vampire prophecy. But of course, Blade uses Karen's weaponized serum and saves the day. There are some superhero cliches that I don't love, like the main female character getting kidnapped and the main character being the linchpin in a big prophecy. The prophecy thing feels a little tacked on to me, like it's just there so the movie can feel bigger. I would have liked the vampire civil war and the political stuff between humans and vampires to have had a little more weight in place of that. Then again, without it, we wouldn't have the extremely well-choreographed and stylized fight at the end between Blade and Frost. And by the way, Blade sure makes up for all his brooding with style. I can't help but smile when he gets his sunglasses back after killing the vampire who stole them, and then deliberately takes his time putting them on. The fights are well-choreographed, and the effects are brilliant, and still hold up quite well even now. Seeing so many vampires turn to dust here is like watching Buffy on steroids. This is one of the best examples I've seen so far of a live-action comic book. It doesn't just feel like a movie based on a comic. It feels like a comic playing out in live-action due to the quick editing, the stylized camera angles, the pacing, the fact that Blade always looks perfectly clean without anything out of place, no matter how much blood is splattering around a scene, and especially that final scene where Blade is just about to fight some vampires and then it cuts to credits like the last page of a comic. This is just one episode in Blade's story, after all. It feels serialized, even though it's a movie. Sure, it might come off as set up for a sequel, but if there had never been one, I don't think I would have been disappointed. 
I feel like I just stepped in the Blades universe, saw a complete story, but that there are several more where that came from. I didn't have to get his entire backstory on film. It jumps in just when the ball starts rolling, and it jumps out just when the ball is done rolling. Then we'll jump back in when the status quo set up at the end is interrupted again with a sequel. Of course, it's an extremely violent and sometimes gory movie with tons of F-bombs, but after the first couple of scenes, that all just feels like part of the package for me. I wish it had been made a couple of years earlier so that Spawn could have taken some pacing and cinematography cues from it. I really didn't expect I'd be giving Blade such high marks, but I can't help but give it a 3.5 out of 4. Ba, ba, ba.